1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, we start with, yeah, oops, it happened again. Another truck, another overpass. Got Andy Roberts standing by. Have a listen to this Global News Report from reporter Chris Doudot.
0: Structural engineers are on site assessing the damage after a truck with an oversized load struck that overpass earlier today. Let's take a closer look at some of that damage earlier today. Now you can see the exposed rebar and the broken concrete.
1: To have this happen again, uh, it is just so frustrating. Okay, you take a look at some of the data here. This has happened more than a dozen times in the last couple of years. Let's check in with Andy Roberts now. Andy is the owner of Mountain Transport Institute in Castlegar. That is one of the best schools for training truck drivers in B.C. Andy, thank you for coming on.
2: Good morning, Michael. I'm glad to be here.
1: Okay, Andy, this is becoming like a bad joke here. This keeps happening over and over again. What goes through your mind when you hear about another one?
2: Uh, I'm... I I don't know. Like I don't know what to think anymore, Mike. It's uh, it's always great to get on your show, but this isn't how I want to get on there. I, I think <laughs> no. this is indicative of of a bigger problem. In in that you know, historically, when we go back twenty or thirty years, it was very senior, experienced drivers that hauled these kinds of loads, and I think again the baby boomers are retiring, and and the average age of a truck driver is is high, and. And uh, as those people retire and the less experienced drivers get some of these jobs, I, I think the knowledge and the experience just isn't being passed down through the ranks. What about
1: this straight-up measuring? Like, when you have an oversized load, like we're, we're learning this truck did yesterday that hit the overpass in Highway 99, they're required to measure that load, Correct
2: well they're responsible to know how high they are so yeah. uh you know y- your legal height is 4.15 meters which is just a hair under 13 feet 7 inches and and if you're over that then you require a permit and your permit gives you very strict instructions as to routing and things like that so yeah. either they they're not uh they're not measuring to check their height and make sure within their within the permit rules or they're not following the routing of the permit
1: yeah, why would someone not follow the route? Like, there's an approved route to make sure that this doesn't happen if they have an oversized load. Like, are some truckers maybe trying to cut corners and get get the deliveries done quicker?
2: Absolutely. I, I would say it's that. it's uh, You know, a lot of these permits are multiple pages long, and, and drivers uh, may not be taking the time to read the details behind the permit. I mean, they're absolutely responsible for it, but the impacts on, on the public responsible or not are, are, are crazy.
1: Are, are drivers adequately trained? I know that you've got one of the best training programs in the province there, but not every driver goes through s- through this type of training. Like, are, is there any kind of mandatory or required training for truck drivers in BC?
2: So we now have mandatory entry level training in British Columbia since October 2021. Um, but I mean, prior to that, no, there wasn't, and and there was no uh, the only the only required training was taking a 16 hour air brake course. And other than that, you could get your learner's license and challenge the road test. Um, there's there's a, a proliferation of driver training schools in the Lower Mainland that that used to just teach you the road test route virtually, which is illegal, of course, but they did it, and they do it at uh, they, they competed on price for students, right? So they were getting people licenses. They weren't actually teaching them uh, what they needed to know to be successful as professional drivers.
1: Speaking to Andy Roberts, owner of Mountain Transport Institute in Castle, Castlegar, they train truck drivers in BC. Let's go back to the experience factor here, Andy, or, or the lack of it there. As, as you mentioned, like in previous days, in the old days, how did it work? Like you, we would not, a guy who was driving like a big 18-wheeler tractor trailer with like a huge, huge heavy load down a highway, those drivers would typically not be driving a vehicle like that unless they were very experienced
2: so in in the in the good old days, as we say, um, y- you couldn't walk out of a driver training school and get into a class one vehicle. you would start in a smaller five ton truck or something like that, and you'd work your way up through the ranks um, as as we went through a, an event called deregulation when the rules uh, when the, when basically the industry was opened up for just about anybody to enter that sort of changed that and and more trucking companies popped up and and they needed drivers and they hired uh, people with uh, with less experience and and so we started to see a trend downwards in the in the uh, quality of driver on the highway and over the years in my opinion that's just gotten worse and worse and worse and and um you know the 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 reason shows like highway through hell and things like that are successful is because there's far too many truck crashes out there not just people hitting overpasses but people rolling trucks over and doing all sorts of silly things
1: Andy, thank you for coming on today. I always appreciate it.
2: You're very welcome, sir. Have a great day.
1: Okay, here we go. We continue talking about trucks versus overpasses. It's happened again on Highway 99 yesterday. Traffic snarled and backed up after another oversized load truck hits an overpass. Got Dylan Kruger standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to one of the victims here in one of these crashes. This is overpass crash victim, Jade Dallas. Have a listen to this.
3: A big chunk of the concrete head hit my face after it went through the window so i have pretty extreme amount of dental damage on the right side of my face and facial fractures
1: yeah i mean we're very fortunate that more people have not been injured or worse here in these uh, so-called accidents that keep happening over and over again got some calls on the line let's quickly check in with delta city councillor dylan kruger councillor thank you for coming on mike thanks for having me okay so this is you know delta has seen a lot of these things happen on, on the highway here your thoughts on it yeah, it
0: seems like a lot of these things are happening on Highway 99. I mean, these are incidents that cost taxpayers tens of millions of dollars in repairs when they happen. Not to mention the traffic nightmare. I was actually caught in this trying to go uh, through the Massey Tunnel yesterday. So when we have overpasses uh, that are out of commission like this for days on end, it's it's significant inconvenience for, uh, for travelers. Um, so, I mean, to be clear, there's A hundred thousand heavy vehicle movements a day in BC. The vast majority of these movements happen without issue. We've got an extremely professional overall uh, class of of truck drivers that are vital to our economy. But when these incidents happen, I mean, we need stronger deterrence. This, This is just getting ridiculous. We must have had at least 12 incidents in the last year.
1: Yeah, for sure. So you think the fines are adequate or not adequate? So this is according to the Ministry of Transportation
0: in an article on CTV News from May of 2023, According to the ministry, each violation like this is subject to a $115 fine. $115. (laughs) Wow. Or potentially millions in damage. So the incident that happened on 192nd Street in July of last year, $115 fine for over a million dollars in
1: damage. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Give me a break here. What do you think the fine should be?
0: Well, I know the province is working on this in fairness to them. I would encourage them in that process, but it has to be punitive To the extent that I I think three things need to happen. Number one, we need higher penalties for drivers or the companies they work for that are found to be at fault. Those with a history of bad behavior should lose their commercial license or their business license should be pulled entirely. And like your previous caller said, we need better mandatory education for all drivers and individuals who load these trucks.
1: For sure. Uh, Counselor, stand by. Let's fit in a couple of calls here. We got Alex on the line in New West. Alex, go ahead. Hey, good
4: morning, gentlemen. I got my class one from North Shore Driving School back around
1: 1997.
4: I think I paid $2,500 for it. I believe I had about 40 hours of driving around the city, and it was broken up. I remember I wasn't too happy with the program. But anyways, I couldn't get a job driving trucks, so I started driving highway coach. And then 2006, I got laid off, and EI said I had to look for another job. So I didn't think I had a chance in hell, but I applied for this. Outfit in Westbridge, Alberta, and yeah. they, i told them I said I had no experience, and when I had teamed up with a with a driver trainer, he sat in the bunk the whole time, and I did all the hard all the hard miles. And he said, you know, like I was going down the hill you're in the wrong gear. Well, anyways, I said, well, am I supposed so, to do okay, so I'm supposed to. So okay, so Alan, ready? did you
1: you just felt you terrified. felt you were not you felt you were not qualified to be driving this vehicle, correct?
4: Absolutely, I don't.
1: Yeah. Alex, thank you for the call. Okay. We heard, counselor, we heard about this earlier before too. You know, we got inexperienced people behind the wheels driving these trucks. I mean, maybe there should be a minimum number of hours behind the wheel before you get in, in the, in the cab of one of these big 18 wheelers. Your thoughts? Yeah, and again,
0: if, if the companies are putting these drivers on the road that don't have the experience, uh, then they should be liable. Here's what Dave Earl, yeah. president of the BC Tracking Association, said. He said, when trailers are loaded, drivers are required to measure the height of the trailer. And if it's over 4.15 meters, that's an oversized load. They're required to contact various authorities, including provincial ones, to get a permit to move that oversized load.
1: Right. And right. I mean, this is this, this, this problem- not happening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this has been around for years. You have to have, you have to be permitted. You have to measure the, the size of what you're carrying. You have to go on an approved route, and uh, and yet it continues to happen. Dave on the line in Mission. Hi, Dave. Go ahead.
0: Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I've called in about this uh, before with you a bunch of times, but you know, here's the problem with all of this that that wasn't that was that was over that was over height only because he had his box up in the air. You can see there was that, there was nothing in the box. It was the box that made contact with the overpass. But how do you drive down the road with a 40-foot box behind you and not notice that it's partway up in the air? You know, and this is where it all falls apart with all of this is because uh, you know, the training is just not there. You can go to a driving yeah. school and you can do as much training with a guy riding around town as you want. But until you get behind the wheel or get in the cab with somebody that knows what they're doing and is going to train you properly on how to operate this equipment... This what's this is what needs to happen. The government needs to step in and make yeah. sure that these driving schools have proper training for these people. And hey, thank you, thank you for the call,
1: Matt. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. And people will recall, Dylan. People will recall an earlier one of these collisions with a, the massive dump truck that was going down the highway with the with the bed of the dump truck up in the air and you could of course you could see the dash cam video of someone behind them and it's almost like watching a a wreck in slow motion you're just like oh my god here it comes this the bed of this dump truck is sticking up in the air it's heading right for this bridge (laughs) and just everyone can see it coming except for the guy driving the truck so you know better training and we need tougher enforcement too. like raising the penalties raising the fines is one thing you got to enforce it too, correct You need to enforce it. And again, I just want to emphasize the the economic
0: cost when this happens 12 or 15 times a year. In addition to the cost of the taxpayers, millions of dollars in seismic repairs, you're shutting down key pieces of infrastructure. Highway 99, which is our main gateway to the United States, plane border crossing to the port of Vancouver to BC ferries in gridlock at a standstill for days on end. There's huge local economic costs when these incidents happen, and they're all entirely avoidable.
1: Absolutely. Sean in Chilliwack. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Uh, there, I, I think the most efficient and
5: simplest and cheapest way to do this, you can change all the regulations and do all the training you want, but why isn't there more uh, efficient warning systems set up before these crossings, before these there? If you were to do that even with a simple plastic pipe and a pole set up at an exit beforehand at the regulated height, you would stop a lot of these trucks from doing that and And they would eliminate having to train all these 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 uh drivers immediately. It' would be a system that would be in place so the let those non uh, drivers find that out.
1: well, okay, thank you for that. Well, I'm not sure like warning signs or whatever are going to make much of a difference i mean the the height of these bridges are already posted i mean i see the I see some of these signs indicating the height of an overpass or a bridge. The bottom line is, if you have an oversized load on this vehicle, you're supposed to travel only on an approved route so that you know for certain that you're going to fit under the overpass. So, I mean, it ain't rocket science here. You have to just follow the rules that are in place, and it appears that some of the people are not following them. Uh, Dylan, thank you for your time today. Mike, thanks so much for having me. Hear that? All right, let's talk about staying cool in the hot weather now. It used to be in Metro Vancouver, you didn't really need air conditioning to get through the summer months. Now, with heat waves, the new normal AC uh, becoming a necessity for many. Now, what happens if you live in an apartment where there is a no AC rule? What if that's written right into your lease? You are not allowed to install an air conditioner in your suite what if you were threatened with being evicted if you do bring if you do have an air conditioner this is happening in other jurisdictions check out what's happening in uh, the state of oregon where this has happened to a lot of people uh, take a listen to these oregon tenants facing eviction because they put air conditioners in their units this is uh, speaking to nbc news have a listen to this just all of a sudden in the middle of july they decide to evict mostly elderly and disabled people for their air conditioners, and I just don't think it's reasonable. I don't want to be put in a position where I have to choose, you know, being sick
3: because I can't eat because of the heat and being in the street. But
1: I just want to keep my air conditioner, and so do these other people. Okay, let's talk to my guest now, Ryan Laniel. Ryan is a tenant who got a note from his landlord about, hey, you better not have an air conditioner in your unit. Hi, Ryan. Thanks a lot for coming on today.
6: Good morning, Mike. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing it. uh, Whereabouts do you live? What part of town do you live in now? I live in uh, New Westminster, uh, 117 Hamilton Street. Okay. So tell me about, like, how hot does it get in your your place in the summer? I've had it up to... 38 degrees
6: uh, Celsius. Uh, It it can be quite the little cooker there. And the the worst thing of it is I'm on the east side of the building. I'm only getting the sun half the day there.
1: Okay. And you tell me about about the air conditioner you bought for your unit.
6: Uh, Three years ago, while the building was in construction, the heat was as bad as the heat bubbles we've endured, And, uh, you know, I finally broke down and bought an air conditioner. I hadn't needed one before. And, uh, did the research, did the square footage of my apartment, figured I need roughly 500 square feet. So what I sourced out was uh, about a $700 unit that did that exactly that, produced 9.5 amps of current draw. I checked my circuits, a 15-amp breaker. I'm like, that's perfect for what I need to use it for. Set it on a timer for an hour before I get home from work for the day. I walk into a cool house. You know, I use it maybe a couple of hours a day. During the heat bubbles and unless it was extreme heat then it was it was going quite quite continuously, but maybe a week or two at a time there, but
1: yeah, yeah and is it, is so. is this one of these floor models, or does this sit in the window?
6: This is a portable floor unit,
1: yeah, and so then it, it vents the it vents outside though, right like you've got like a flexible tube that goes up to the window. is that how it works that is correct, yeah, yeah, okay, and it's working well for you it's helping you get through the summer now. It is. It really is, yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, this is a necessity for a lot of people, man, especially if you're in a unit just sweltering uh, through these heat waves, for sure. So let's talk now about the about the rules in, in your building there, Ryan. So tell me about the notice that you received from your landlord.
6: So I, what I received was actually a bulk email that I believe that several buildings owned by this individual received. And uh, at first I you know, heated it, you know, okay, safety, it's my personal safety, it's about the building and other safety. So, you know, the notice said, you know, consult with an electrician, make sure it was safe to use your air conditioner and, you know, use at your own risk. So I'm an elevator technician. I work with several electricians. I know several electricians. I work with electricity every day. I kind of knew the answer. I wanted to verify with an electrician. I said, I have a 9.5 amp unit working on a 15 amp circuit, am I in trouble? This is the age of my building. It's on a, on a breaker. No, no electrician said that there was anything wrong, right? So, you know, the breaker it protects you from overdrawing the average so that the system has a built-in safety mechanism for the tenant in the building.
1: Okay, taking a look at the part of the email it says that you received, Ryan, so it says, management cannot authorize any tenants to install AC. Units. And did they say, like you touched on this briefly, but they're saying it's like a, what, like a safety issue? Is this like an older building?
6: Well, that's what their their thing is. And then they're stating that, you know, their lease says you can't do this. I don't have a lease with this landlord. My lease is actually with their previous landlord. So, you know, when their landlord or when their representatives talking about their lease and what's on their lease, I do not have a, a, a lease with the current landlord. It's a previous previous lease. I'm grandfathered in on a lot of things.
1: Yeah. How do your neighbours feel about it? Like, did everyone in the building get the similar similar kind of warning? Well, this is another thing. Being that it was an
6: email instead of an actual letter notice, like I believe a building management company is supposed to do, Um, I talked to my next-door neighbor who didn't even get a notice about it because he doesn't have email, and there was a couple other people that didn't get a notice about this either. Uh, The new tenants with their new leases, I'm not sure what's on their leases, but uh, they have portable units and they also have window-hanging units in their apartments as we speak.
1: Do you think it should be, like, everyone should be allowed to have an air conditioner, especially in, in, in these type of heat heat waves that we're experiencing? Like, should that just be a basic, basic right of anyone to try and stay cool? I, I really
6: do believe that it should be a basic right. You know, yeah. air conditioning changed the south of America, right? Like, uh, not like South America, like the southern states. And you yeah. can look at the research. It, it changed everything, right? You know, so... Yeah, how
1: about, I believe how about, it, it is. How about some of your neighbors? I bet you've got some elderly neighbors there too. And it's really tough on older people when they have to go through this heat wave.
6: Uh, it is tough on them. I check I have a couple senior uh senior citizens in the building. There's one senior I check in constantly because, you know, I am worried about it. He's on the southwest side, right? I can't even he, he does not have an air conditioner, so you know, uh a, I believe he got fans last year. I think I helped him with that and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, but it it must really be stressing out these, these elderly. And then, you know, they have an affordable housing unit and now they're like, they're forced to make a choice basically, you know, their health or, you know, the cheap rent it
1: seems. Are you worried at all about, like you mentioned that, you know, you're an, you're an elevator technician, so you you know a lot of, you're a handy guy, you know a lot of technical stuff on this. You feel that the air conditioner you have is, is not going to pose a problem, but are you worried about, are you worried about a landlord or anyone else kind of saying like, hey, you're not allowed to have this? Um, you know, from the technical
6: aspect, I'm not worried about using the AC unit. You know, yeah. I've done exactly as their letter has said. I've checked with an electrician, you know. Uh, yeah. You could Google what I've done and it's it's legit. I am le- worried about consequences from my landlord, like I stated earlier, I have a previous lease with the previous at uh, lease with the previous landlord. he's been yeah. trying to run ev- run of evict us. there's eight of us in the building he's been after us ever since he's taken over the building, so you know everything he writes in is eviction also you know subject to eviction right so
1: yeah Ryan, thanks for coming on and sharing your story today. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you very much for doing what you do. Have yourself a great day. Stay safe. All right, we're talking about the tenants in New Westminster received uh, warnings from landlords there about AC units in their building. This is not uncommon in buildings around British Columbia, especially if it's an older, say, an older Strata building. There are concerns around the electrical capacity in some of these older buildings if everyone started plugging in air conditioners at the same time. So this is why some of the managers of these buildings saying these rules are in place. But, man, when you are sweating it out through these heat waves Uh, Shouldn't air conditioning be allowed for everybody? Let's uh, go to your calls here. Steve on the line in Delta. Hi, Steve. What do you think?
5: Well, I'm in the window industry, and and air conditioners don't work in every window. So if you mandate it, you're going to mandate guys to have to pull out windows. And and then is it going to be in every bedroom, living room, dining room? So it's kind of hard to mandate the landlord. I mean, I could see a tenant buying their own AC, no problem. It's going to yeah. use a lot of electricity, though, because you know everybody's going to have their air conditioner on all, all the time. And how is that going to help the environment? So, I don't know, it's a, it's a slippery slope to mandate something like that. Because, like I say, are, is a guy going to have to put in four air conditioners and pull out four of his windows? Now you're okay. talking 10000 $20,000. That's
1: a great point. Now, as a window guy, do you ever see people who have tried to jam in some of these air conditioners in a window that's not really suited for it?
5: Yeah, and it doesn't work. It only works up with or works with windows that slide. If you have one of the windows that you know is on a hinge, it yeah. really doesn't work that well. Yeah. So you know, how do how do you change that,
2: Steve? Thank and you for again, the.
5: Like I, like I say, do you yeah. do it? What if the guy wants it in every room in the house? You know, if I if I'm renting a house, am I gonna put in seven air conditioners? You know, it's kind of unfair to the, you know. But I, I believe people should be allowed to put air conditioners in, no problem. Yeah. But I don't I don't think you have to force the landlord to pay
1: for them. Steve, thank you for the call. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Kelly on Vancouver Island. Hi, Kelly. Go ahead.
3: Hi. Um, just speaking to the electrical capacity to add all these air conditioners. Yeah. My father lives in a, a townhome strata. They've been told that they can't put in air conditioning or EV filters. Had you see how they look? They don't have capacity. They would have to do a major upgrade, um, and then then an upgrade possibly for the wiring to each unit, and then possible, improbable upgrades to their uh, breakers, yeah, and or their boards. And so it just seems like a potentially a huge issue for air conditioning and for electric vehicles.
1: Yeah for sure Kelly thank you for that and that's a great point you made about the electrical vehicles as well so as everyone's getting transitioning to electric vehicles in the future that puts a lot of strain on the system as well so I'll tell you this is going to be a bigger issue going forward here mike in vancouver hi mike what do you think
4: oh yeah. is this mike here or mike here How yeah is- hi mike yeah, yeah. You, you're that's on first time a caller uh, oh. I like your show uh, you. i live in bc housing the building was built in 1968 It qualifies for an old building, and we use a lot of electricity. A lot of handicapped people here, but they bought a big generator, Mike. They bought a huge generator. I don't know what it cost, but it facilitates everything. And that's BC Housing Government, but the landlords got sometimes they got more money than the government. So there's a solution there, and there's a high tech uh, revolution going on with these generators. You could buy them kind of cheap, you know, nineteen hundred to all the way to ten thousand bucks. And that's not much, and it will cover everything. I'm telling you, this thing's powerful, and uh, you could have all the air conditioning you want because of the the supply.
1: That's that's very interesting. So, what do they use the generator for? Is it for the whole building?
4: Yeah, it's for the whole building. It was oh. built for veterans in '68, but they upgraded okay. it because it's so solid. Built in '68, uh, construction stuff, and um, they upgraded it to a point where. They're using it as a flagship, I guess, for BC Housing, because BC Housing has been getting kind of a bad rap lately. But they're okay. using it as a flagship, and it's run pretty good. And this is a huge generator, and i just, just got to find out the cost. But, you know, it's not—it's it's huge because the building's huge, you see. Okay. And, uh, Mike, th-
1: Mike, thank you for the call, and thank you for listening to the show. John in Burnaby. Hi, John. Go ahead.
5: Yeah, hi there. First of all, I'm, I'm against mandating air conditioning, but I am in favor of having legislation that says if you the power source for your unit is capable of handling air conditioning, that a landlord cannot deny them getting air conditioning. And one yeah. other point is those units use up a ton of electricity. So if electricity is part of somebody's rent, then there needs to be somewhere to protect the landlord against having clients have the electricity on all day long where it would, you know, increase costs substantially.
1: Thank you, John. There's some really good points being made by the callers for sure. Sally in Princeton. Hi, Sally. What do you think?
3: Yeah. Hi, Mike. Um, The the man who just spoke um, about the electricity, yes, if it's in the contract with the landlord, then Uh I can see where this would, the bill, but if the man is paying his own power, and I didn't hear when he spoke, if he was, then Uh it's up to him if he wants to run it all night, as long as it doesn't compromise the breaker. So, you know, um, just a point, but it's very important, and because of the climate change and the, high heat all over the world at the moment, it's going to get hotter. I just heard that again this morning.
1: Oh, yeah, it's going to get hotter, and this is going to be a bigger issue. All right. Let's keep talking now about the drug addiction and overdose crisis, how mental health plays such a huge role, especially if people are using some of the most dangerous street drugs. Now, you just heard from the Delta police chief with his concerns about the situation, especially the escalating death rate from drug overdoses. Brand new numbers out on that today. What is the answer here? Well, the B.C. government this week announcing an expansion of mobile integrated crisis response teams. Those are police officers working side-by-side with public health nurses. Police receive an overdose call or a mental health call. They respond. A public health nurse responds with the police at the same time. Got Christine Gower standing by to discuss. First, this is a program that has been in place for some time in many communities. It's being expanded in British Columbia. Have a listen to the chief of the Vancouver Police Department here, Adam Palmer. And these programs that have been developed over the last 45 years Our leading-edge programs, they've been recognized throughout North America, but today we're going to make those programs stronger and even better and more expansive. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Christina Gower. Christina is a psychiatric nurse and an advocate for improved patient care, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hey, Christina, thank you very much for coming on today.
3: Uh, Anytime. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Christina, let's talk about this idea in principle. Do, Do you think this makes sense? Like a lot of people will say that the drug crisis that we have right now, it shouldn't be treated as like a, a, a criminal crisis but more a healthcare crisis and therefore does it make sense to have police sort of do a team-up with nurses to respond to drug drug calls and mental health calls?
3: Um, yeah, that's a a, a big question um, ethically. So, so healthcare is uh, not meant to be police uh, involved but um, we're at a, a situation now where we have a lot of uh, unprovoked attacks um and uh and police are needing to be involved in that um and plus we don't have we need people on the street that are going to be there when people are having an active overdose as well and police generally are the ones there so in principle um i have to say there's a a definite upside uh for addressing overdoses um and uh but we have um we have a real uh thin line between what is um becomes criminal and what is become you know primarily health care when there are unprovoked attacks so my take yeah. on that is um uh you know your 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 safety as a public a member of the public should not be superseded by somebody um because they are under the influence so uh you know um I guess putting the, the nursing together with police helps, but I don't think it solves the problem. It helps address it at street level, but it doesn't fix the problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard it described as kind of a, a combination problem. I mean, you may have a situation where there, there's a mental health call or there's a drug overdose, and some people may say, well, is it appropriate for police to respond to a mental health crisis? Well, in, some, in many cases it is, because you've got violence involved or threats of violence in addition to having someone having a mental health episode or or a drug overdose. So in cases like that, it's like you can't, you know, I think it'd be kind of naive to think that a nurse can respond alone to some of these cases. Don't you need police there in in some of these cases as well?
3: We are routinely calling police to hospital. (laughs) So that's with multiple security uh, members on our team and and staff members that come running when you when you sound an alarm. Um, and, and there are times, you know, that we have to call police uh, very regularly so, and, and increasingly so. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I've been, you know, I've been advocating and trying to get politicians to listen for years now about um, the crystal meth problem that we have. It's not just fentanyl that is our problem, although that is um, the source of uh, many of our um, Uh, untimely deaths of uh, poor people that are not getting uh, the help they need for pain control and addiction. Um, But crystal meth is a whole different story where uh, it actually really changes the structure of your brain. And it takes about nine months to clear from using that. um, And uh, in the meantime, they can get uh, brain injuries and uh, uh, like traumatic brain injuries on top of that. Um, so, so, but that is the main source, um, is the crystal meth is for our unprovoked unprov- attacks. And I'm, I'm not sure people are aware of that.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I mean, that's a drug. Like, let's say you have someone who has a, a mental illness, like if, and if someone is hooked on meth and if it, especially if it's producing brain damage, can that make the mental health crisis even, even worse or, pro- or provoke even more mental illness?
3: For sure. And you know, yeah. it's, 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 when you use illicit drugs, it's no different than pharmaceuticals, okay? Because it's, it's just not prescribed. It's still self-medication. It's still medicating a symptom that is, um, you know, poor stress tolerance or perhaps an underlying uh, serious and persistent mental illness. So, uh, you know, when, when we're seeing, you know, we, we can run the gamut on that. We, we now have people precariously housed that uh, make pretty decent living, what should be, um, uh, that's hugely stressful. We have people that are working too many hours and becoming injured. We have, you know, it, it just runs from that all all the way across the board to the point where, you know, um, one, one end we have people with, with a true AXIS-1 diagnosis for mental illness that is not coping well with it and is, is augmenting um, their symptoms with some illicit drug use to people that are, falling towards that end of the spectrum because of the social um, uh, safety nets that are no longer in place.
1: Speaking of psychiatric nurse, Christina Gower, uh, the expansion of police and public health nursing t- nurses teaming up for crisis response teams fanning out across British Columbia. Here's one thing that occurred to me, Christina, as soon as I heard this announcement, and then I've heard it from the president of the BC Nurses Union this week as well. Where are these nurses supposed to come from? Because we have a shortage, a really bad shortage of nurses in this province right now, correct?
3: We do. Um, That's the first thing I said when Mayor Sims uh, came out with his platform promise of hiring 100 nurses. Uh, And I think you'll see that he's hired the police, but he did not hire the the nurses. Um, uh, Although that wasn't... uh, I don't even think it was advertised. To be honest, I'm not sure, but um, that's what I gather. Um, so yeah, we're 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 probably about twenty five thousand nurses short in this um, in this province alone right now. And um, you know, we just had a new contract um, for for the nurses Barg- bargaining association members, and uh, it did um, place some incentives uh, for acute care. It didn't really no. put incentives for. Community care, which is what um, uh, the CAR 87 or 67, um, uh, whichever city you're in, um, that team would be. Uh, So, you know, with with the price of housing and and, uh, retaining, um, you know, being able to maintain your life here in B.C., uh, it's pretty tough to do. um, And and it's more desirable to stay in acute care as far as I'm concerned, that that's where I need to be. uh, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure we'll get some interest, but I, but, it, but it's going to spread us more thin across the board.
1: It's a, it's a great point because we have such a chronic shortage right now. And a lot of these announcements sound great. Like, yeah, let's get team up nurses with police officers all across BC to respond to these crises. Well, you know, you've got thousands of nurses short right now in hospitals. So let's, uh, let's put a break in here right now, Christina, and then we will come back with more. Let me play this here first. Here's Premier David Eby. Now, we, know, we all know about the nursing shortage here right now, and there's been an effort to get foreign-trained nurses into British Columbia, get them certified to practice here. But, man, you talk about a backlog of nurses trying to come here and go to work. Have a listen to David Eby talking about that and some of the shocking numbers here. Listen to this.
0: Currently, there are 2,000 uh, nurses who have applied. Uh, to practice in British Columbia that are coming from international jurisdictions. Uh, and there's uh, 5,000 nurses that have indicated the level of interest in coming to British Columbia. The current wait time for those 2,000 people who are in that queue, uh, is, believe it or not, is three years.
1: All right, we continue talking about the mental health and addictions crisis in our province. Public health nurses teaming up with police officers now, mobile response teams being expanded in British Columbia. We have a nursing shortage though in BC. Where are these nurses supposed to come from? My guest is Christina Gower. Christina is a psychiatric nurse. Lots of calls here. Gurdeep and Suri. Hi, Gardeep. Go ahead.
7: Hi, Mike, and uh, to your guest, uh, you know, I uh, I ran taxi fleets uh, from 2008 until last year, and I have unfortunately had to employ some of the most overqualified uh, drivers who were healthcare professionals in other countries, but they're rec- you know the credentials were not recognized uh, the lady used to do the cleanup of our office was a nurse from the philippines but she used to do cleanup because the credentials were not recognized so the government and these regulatory bodies the colleges are directly responsible for the situation we're in today they could if they wanted to with a stroke of a pen allocate enough resources to fund you know the training of these uh doctors during their transition period and other professionals or to yeah. reduce the red fever. None of that has happened. So let's not, uh, they need to look in the mirror before they tell people there's a three-year wait. They are
1: okay, Gurdip, thank you very much for the call. Well, obviously, for people to work in the healthcare system, you have to make sure they're qualified. You have to make sure that they're adequately trained. But Christina, are you hearing this a lot? Like, are you hearing from people who saying they're trying to work in BC, they're having trouble getting licensed?
3: Absolutely. I'm um, part of a, a couple of groups online on Facebook that um, are nurses uh, locally and, uh, and thousands of nurses, nurses and uh, people have joined um, that have moved here uh, five, six, seven years ago, longer than uh, the three years that D- David Eb was talking about. So mm. uh, and they're still um, not able to uh, they have basically been told it's so long that they need to redo all of their education.
1: Right. Right. Dave and Vernon. Hi, Dave. Go ahead
7: i would just like to uh mention that my daughter uh was also in the same boat uh she was born and raised here in bc uh she moved out to alberta got her license uh, rn uh she worked uh in, in the uh heart heart hospital in calgary she went up north and worked up north for two years and then she got pregnant and had a child now she's trying to get back in the workforce and um uh, just the hoops and, and stuff that they're trying to make her go through in BC is just incredible. Uh, you know, like when you, you know, they, they they wonder if she's qualified. Well, she's got all sorts of letters saying she is qualified from different employers back there, or from one employer. Um, but it's just incredible the the hoops that they uh, have to go through.
1: Okay, okay, Dave. Well, I hope that works out for her. Boy, I mean, that's kind of surprising. It just coming even from another province. They're having trouble getting certified in B.C.? Christina, have you heard of that?
3: You bet. Every day. Mm.
7: Yeah.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Okay. Like, you know, talk, you know, you you tend to think, well, this is like foreign trained nurses in another country. I mean, if you're having trouble even moving from one province to another, I think that's a big problem. Bernie in Langley. Hi, Bernie. Go ahead.
5: Hello. I'm just curious about the 2,500 plus nurses that can work and are certified to work in this province, yet cannot because of the vaccine status while other jurisdictions have lifted all those statuses, we still struggle in BC under that under that rule. And I'm curious to why yeah. that hasn't changed.
1: Yeah, I know that some other jurisdictions have lifted the vaccination rule. Um, maybe they will at some point here in British Columbia. Christine, do you have any thoughts on it? Sure.
3: Um, the number actually dwindled down to about 940-odd uh, healthcare professionals, um, not just nurses, uh, but in total, just to clarify. And... Um I I think what happens is when we sign our contract it it does state that we are required to take uh vaccinations as as required by our employer and it's a contractual item so um if somebody was unable to follow that uh you know that's that's the HR nightmare that it is so yeah. so I I know that there is a court case and I know that the union has fought um I'm not sure where it all stands but um I, uh, I'll tell you my my opinion on that has has evolved over time and that um, you know what I, I mean personally I've been off for three weeks I'm sure it's COVID uh, myself and I'm vaccinated many times over so
1: yeah. <laughs> let's
3: just get him back to work I kind of feel yeah that I, way I, I'm myself. tending
1: to think that way that way as well let's squeeze in one more call Terry and yeah. Kelowna Terry you got 30 seconds here
5: Hey and I think its uh, I think it's also a money problem. It's expensive to live here in British Columbia. Um, yeah. you know, I don't think they get paid properly. Personally, you know, we got uh, we're spending money all over the world and I'm grateful that we're we can do that from Canada point of view. I like that. But at the same time, you know, if my roof is leaking, I got to fix my roof first and then I'll come over and fix your roof. So I think we Gary, need to pay thank- them also.
1: Thank you for the call. Christina, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it.
3: I appreciate it. Thank you.